to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. In 2008, tonight's guest appeared on this show to talk about her book, on the free state of Jones, a county in Mississippi known for its resistance to secession and the Confederate government. We also talked about the tantalizing possibility of that book being made into a movie, as well as the author's next historical research project into the aftermath of the free state of Jones and similar nests of resistance throughout the Confederacy. Well, now it's 2016, the movie is out, the book is published, and Professor Victoria Bynum is back to tell us about the long shadow of the Civil War, Southern Descent and its legacies, as well as the film Free State of Jones, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex in the field at 205 Oxford Road, not on the campus of East Carolina University, where we normally do the show, but uh, the home office instead. Uh, That was the case the last time, and that means I'm not speaking for ECU because I'm not even there, and they're not speaking for me. My guest won't speak for anyone but herself. The usual drill is in place. The last time our guest was on the show eight years ago, I listened uh, to hear what we talked about this afternoon, and it turned out I did that show from home as well. I was sick. I'm happy to report I'm feeling fine this year, but Mrs. P is on the road with her students on a field trip to Boston uh, for the whole week, so I'm home tending to our elderly standard poodle and our cat, and uh, can't can't leave them alone to stay in the office and do the show. It's 2016. It's the second day of November, which also means historians will notice the last day of the 
self-pity era of either the Chicago Cubs or the Cleveland Indians. One of them is going to win the World Series tonight, starting right after this show. So you're hearing the last recorded words of the the pre-victory era of one of those two teams as the long drought will come to an end. Other teams that have been winning, uh, the Pirates here at ECU clobbered their opponent at homecoming. My alumnus, uh, my alma mater, Michigan Wolverines, beat up on Michigan State, finally. And most important of all, Greenville United in the Pitt County uh, Recreational Soccer League won on Sunday. Uh, That's my team, and I scored a goal. It was an achievement tempered by the fact the other team had three players on red cards in the previous week and were playing actually four men down the whole game. So all of us scored goals. I think we were 12 to nothing at halftime when the ref made us stop. Uh, but a goal is a goal, so I'm, I'm happy with that. Uh, other goals for the year are to continue bringing interesting guests onto Civil War Talk Radio, and we have some good ones coming up next week. Uh, Paul Cahan uh, is the author of Amiable Scoundrel. It's a book about Simon Cameron, the Secretary of War, the first Secretary of War in the Lincoln administration. And then on November 16th, uh, Guy Hubbs, author of Guarding Greensboro, it's a book, a look at a particular community, Greensboro, Alabama, and a Confederate company in the defense of that community. And that gets us to Thanksgiving when we will. Uh, take a break and come back more shows after that since I'm home I don't have my giant list in front of me it's back at the office so I have to go find out who's on next to do that you can do that by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org where all information about Civil War talk radio is preserved and presented find out who's going to be on next find out about the books or films in some cases that we're discussing on the show and you can go ahead and buy them there if you click on the 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 icon for a given book it will take you to amazon and if you buy it there from amazon a percentage of what you pay goes to civil war talk radio so that the website can be maintained and Mark Gaffney, who produces the website out of the goodness of his heart, can receive some meager compensation for his efforts. Mark sent an interesting note this week to me. Uh, first of all, discovered that some of the original links going back eight or nine years to books from the first years of the show have been changed by Amazon, so he's revising them to get them up to date. It may take a while, but he'll, he'll get them all. Actually, but that's not significant in terms of using it. If you go to impedimentsofwar.org, click on any book and get into Amazon, then anything you buy after that uh, on that visit to the site goes to the credit of Civil War Talk Radio. I believe that's how that works. That's the other interesting thing that Mark uh, came up with this week was a spreadsheet showing uh, where people had bought things by going through impediments of war. So there's a, a list of those things. And it turns out that for most purchases you make, once you're in Amazon, the uh, the, the website gets a percentage, a small percentage, uh, usually less than a dollar on a given uh, book purchase, let's say. The one exception was magazine subscriptions. For some reason, we get a, like a chunk, like a quarter of the price. So 
if you are thinking of subscribing to a magazine, if, for example, you're not already a subscriber to Civil War Monitor magazine, go through impedimentsofwar.org and get onto Amazon and then subscribe to Civil War Monitor. You won't be sorry. It's an excellent magazine. I have no financial stake in it. I just think it's really good. Uh, but it doesn't really matter what magazine. It can be Rolling Stone or Southern Living or just renewing your subscription to Model Railroad or whatever it is. Do it through uh, Impediments of War and Civil War Talk Radio. will very much appreciate it. You can also, of course, donate directly to Civil War Talk Radio through the website. Click on the PayPal link. Uh, consider a recurring donation, just a dollar, two dollars, uh, that shows up every month, enough to soothe your guilty conscience uh, for not paying for the books that you hear about each week, and yet not so much as to actually dent one's wallet a dollar or two. Well, won't make a big difference, one hopes. Uh, consider that as an option, and then uh, I can stop talking about that. Instead, talk about uh, the show. Earlier this week, I was in my office, and the undergrad advisor, one of my colleagues, came in with a student who had a question about a Civil War class, and she said she had volunteered the past summer at Gettysburg, and that when she mentioned she was a student at East Carolina, people who were connected with the, the park, at least, would say, oh, that, that's Civil War talk radio. Do you know that guy? So I conclude from that that I'm nationally famous now, but I'm not Hollywood famous. And to get Hollywood famous, you have to have your book made into a major motion picture. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight with our guest, Professor Victoria Bynum, a friend of the show, has been here before, and happy to welcome her back. Vicki, are you there? I am here. Thank you so much. And it hardly seems like eight years ago. It not that amazing how, how quickly yeah. that went by? You were the uh, uh, candidate for the Witchard chair. Or had, we invited you to be the, the, the one-year visiting professor that year. And I know if something came up, we couldn't do that. That's um, right. And I had really, really hoped to do it. And um, my mother I uh, was very ill. She got breast cancer, oh, all sorts dear. of things. She survived, though. But, um, oh, yeah, good. that was a great disappointment to me to, to have to uh, back away from that. Oh, I appreciate it. We were certainly honored to have you consider it, and, and too bad that did not work out. Well, when we last talked, I don't really don't listen to old shows just because I'm busy working on the next one, but I thought I would go back and listen to our conversation from eight years ago just to make sure we don't repeat ourselves. And we did talk about the possibility of a film being made out of That's Free right. State of I really listened to it, too. That's funny. About less than a year ago, somebody posted it on Facebook, and I thought, wow, I haven't heard this in a long time. I think I'll just listen to it. And we did discuss the possibility of the movie. Yeah. You, you mentioned Gary Ross, director of uh, Hunger Games, was involved in the project, and you were optimistic that uh, he would would do a, a good job with this. Let me say here to the listeners, if you have not yet seen Free State of Jones, then, or this being Civil War Talk Radio, if you have not yet read the book on Free State of Jones, then hit pause and go rent the movie, read the book, because there's going to be spoilers in the next hour. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And you'll, you'll want to, to see the movie. It's really good. Uh, so let me just start by asking, uh, overall, 
feeling about it, about how, how Gary Ross did as director, how, how the film came out. Are you happy with the, the outcome? Yes, I am. I'm very happy. My husband and I got a private viewing just before it was released, and and uh, we were really pleased with it. We we thought uh, we thought the movie uh, captured the whole spirit of of Southern Unionism. Uh, one of the ways in which someone might become a Southern Unionist. We thought Matthew McConaughey was was uh, pretty perfect in playing Newt Knight. At least as far as any of us can ever know somebody who's been dead for so many years, it did seem like Matthew McConaughey captured him. And I think overall what I really liked about the movie was the way in which Gary Ross, and this is really Gary Ross's passion, really refuted a lot of the lost cause myths about the Civil War and Reconstruction. His determination was to tell a story that had the had an accurate historical context for the very exciting story that he wanted to tell. And he, as all movie makers do, there were things that were changed uh, about the story of Newt Knight and the Free State of Jones itself, and he's been very candid about that. He even posted a website to show what was factual and what was what, what, what characters were composites and what scenes in, in, that he changed for cinematic purposes and for, for dramatic purposes. But I think the thing that still really shines about that film is that he did, I think, a wonderful job in presenting the historical context so that the, the essence of the story, the, the essential truth of the story, is, is very much evident in the, in the picture he produced. Now... Having said that, of course, anytime you produce history on film, there there have to be compromises. You can't show a three-year event in two hours without exactly, yeah. changing things. And you've got to make up conversations because, they, darn it, they didn't write them down. <laughs> exactly what they said at, at, at each moment. So, of course, dialogue has to be created. So, in terms of compromises, were there any that, that you found disconcerting? That, that if if you in a perfect world, if you could revise a scene, yeah. Well, I think that in a two-hour and nineteen-minute movie, you could never have adequately told the story of the interracial relationship between Newt Knight and Rachel. And I think I think that Gary Ross made the right decision to really focus on the war and Reconstruction that that part of the story because there really are two stories here. And so, in a perfect world, uh, I and also many of the descendants of, of Rachel and Newton really would have liked to have had a fuller story told there. Um, it's it's there, and it's 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 an extremely important part of the war story because it's an interracial story, but it's. It doesn't go very far into that whole story, which would have taken us in a whole different direction. But it's a story that needs to be told. In fact, what I've said at a couple of talks that I've given is I really think there there should be, with the interest that it's generated, there should be uh, either a second movie or maybe a miniseries, but more exploration of that, because that's a very complex, interesting story that goes well into the 20th century, and I follow it into the 20th century with the long shadow of the Civil War, that I think uh, uh, many people would find fascinating. Just um, on the off chance that there are listeners who haven't seen the movie or read the book, can you give us a a 30-second plot outline, just generally what this is about, so so listeners can can have a context. Uh, yeah. Who- uh, this is this is a story where you have an uprising of, uh, of some 
100 to 125 uh, men within that, that join forces in a band, an organized band called the Knight Company, but it's much larger than that because it is, uh, the whole community is involved in it. Their, their wives, their daughters, their, their older fathers are, are all participants in this uprising against the Confederacy. It is an armed uprising. Uh, it involves an effort to try to join forces with uh, Union forces, that's never successful. And after the war, it, it also includes a 30-year effort on the part of Newton Knight to be compensated by the government for having supported the Union during the Civil War. So it's a long story, really. <laughs> there, there certainly is a lot, and it really is, uh, I would certainly agree, I thought it was very well compressed given the, the obvious need to, to tell stories differently on film than one can do on, on pages, uh, that it did a great job of capturing that. Um, one more quick question before you take a break, and the one all my students want to know is, did you get to uh, meet the stars of the movie? I got to meet, uh, I, I, uh, let me first say, just to, I did not formally meet Matthew McConaughey, Don, even though I was in the same ah. army tent as him <laughs> for four hours <laughs> during the afternoon when my, when my small little part was filmed. It was a scene where most of the time I, like the rest of the, the extras, we were all watching Matthew McConaughey get his scene right. Um, and right afterwards, he left right after the scene, and I went out to meet him, and, and he had already gone back to his trailer to his wife and his children, like the good husband and father he is, and I didn't get to meet him that day. <laughs> and uh, I, left, I left Louisiana the next day. Well, that, that is uh, certainly disappointing. Uh, uh, my students will... will We'll be sorry to hear that, but but uh, I got to meet they, a lot of the people, like the, the the Carrie Cahill. I just so enjoyed meeting her, and well, um, the guy I, who I'm played Elias Hood, who was the person that was murdered by Newt Knight in the movie. I met him at the premiere, and it was really fun to meet uh, the actors that played some of these really vivid supporting roles. I loved it. Well, there, there are wonderful acting performances throughout. We're going to talk more about this. We're going to take a short break now, come back, talk with our guest. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we're talking tonight with Victoria Bynum, author of Free State of Jones, and now of The Long Shadow of the Civil War, Southern Descent and Its Legacies. We'll come back with more. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. If you do have something uh, to comment on the show, please feel free to send an email just as we were Speaking in the first segment, uh, one came across the desk here from listeners who were interested in Morgan's Raid, a recent show topic, and sent some very nice photographs of uh, monuments up from, uh, looks like, Selineville, Ohio, the farthest northern point of the raid. So thank you for sending those. Always uh, interesting to know people are uh, following up on some of the things we talk about. Uh, tonight we're talking with Vicki Bynum, who has written about the free state of Jones, and that is, of course, the subject of a recent major motion picture. Uh, another question I absolutely have to ask, uh, Vicki, is what it was like, you mentioned, being in a scene as an extra uh, in, in the opening hospital, field hospital scene. You were in there uh, briefly as a, a nurse tending to a patient. What what was that like, uh, participating I wouldn't get my lines right, and even though I only had one, <laughs> maybe it was, it was two, but they cut the second one. And uh-huh. I was I was reading scripture to a dying soldier who had just had his leg amputated. As you may remember, that scene was pretty gory there with the scenes yes. in the hospital tent. And so then they flashed me very briefly where I'm praying over over a, a dying soldier, and uh, it. It was it was very exciting. I mean, I I've never done anything like that. Obviously, so it was a totally new experience. And what was as I mentioned uh, before the break, I was in the tent for hours. You know, just watching the takes and the retakes of of scenes with not just Matthew McConaughey, but but other major scenes. And that was as exciting as that moment when I finally got to do my line. Uh, to be that close to actors doing a scene and all of the photographers and to really see that firsthand yeah it was really quite something and my husband also got to be an extra and so we just had uh, a wonderful uh well we were on the set three days because he he did his scene on a different day than i did and so we just got swept up in it all (laughs) the fun of it but also we saw the hard work we were there for 12 hours uh, each of the days, and mm-hmm. of course, we weren't working nearly as hard as a lot of the other people there. So all of that was was uh, quite a uh, quite an interesting experience for us. It is interesting to see to get behind the scenes in any profession and see what people really do. Uh, Natalie Zeman Davis wrote an article, I think, for uh, American Historical Review some years ago, or maybe it was Journal of American History, uh, where where she was the historical consultant on the return of Martin Gare, and she also played a, uh, an extra in the film. And I've used that teaching uh, public history students about media and history, and she had one view on what the role of the historical consultant was. You're credited in this movie as one of the historical consultants. What, how much were you actually consulted? Well, 
And by the way, I love the return of Martin Gare. I use that for years in my class, too. What a wonderful mm-hmm. uh, whole uh, series you can do with that. But sure. as for my own um, part in this and, and uh, my own role as a consultant, there were about, I think there were about a dozen of us in there as consultants. I really felt that my major role as a consultant was the contribution of the book. The movie mm-hmm. is not based on my book, but it definitely, you know, my book was it was a major source of research for mm-hmm. the writing of the book. And what I really pleased me was the number of actors who were in the movie, like the person who played Jasper Collins, who was Newt Knight's right-hand man, actually emailed me, and so did the one playing Bill Sumrall, or Will Sumrall. Um, he goes by two different nicknames, apparently. But anyway, <laughs> they actually emailed me and asked me questions, consulted with me privately after having read the book. That was a really, uh, that was a really, um, I mean, I was quite flattered by that, to be personally consulted by them. And as the movie went on, Gary Ross would, at various times, particularly when the trailer came out, he would really talk with me a lot about how did I like it, you know, what was my reaction to it. Because as far as writing the script, he really wrote that script way back in the, back during the time when you and I first had our interview, he was already writing his script back then. And Mm -hmm. we weren't really consulting so much as he was using my book as a tool. So that that was sort of my major role, I think, in, in the script was that he had, he had my book to draw from, and other mm-hmm. books as well, not just mine, but, but mine was the, was the first and most, in most detailed historical work with, you know, footnotes and documentation and all of that, and so that particularly interested him. That, that's, I find that fascinating that the actors had gone ahead and looked at your book and consulted it themselves, that I mean, shows how, how professional they are, uh, that they, they really want to get it right, and they want to see whatever background information they can get to uh, to make their character more real. One scene I, I want to ask about is the uh, the church ambush scene, the funeral ambush. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's one of the most dramatic scenes, uh, a big action scene in the, in the middle of the film. Did something like that actually happen? There are there. There's an ambush at a wedding party um, that took place in December. That that made me think of that scene. That literal scene, uh, as as portrayed in the movie, did not happen that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my book, you won't find uh, there are certainly women that that wielded guns, and and, and I think they're very well. I'm I'm pretty sure there were ones in Jones County, but I don't have any documented evidence of that sort of that sort of action by women with those guns. And <laughs> believe me, those are my favorite scenes in the movies. I just in the movie, I just love it. <laughs> Uh, I found more references to that when I was doing my North Carolina research for unruly women. And that was one of the things that uh, Gary Ross and I often discussed. And I would often bring up my North Carolina research because the North Carolina records were so much fuller than the Mississippi records. And so oftentimes what what would only be suggested for Mississippi, but you couldn't quite document, you could find plenty of documentation for it in, in the state of North Carolina, and I'm sure other states, where the, the archives are just still filled with the documentation of these inner civil wars. And so the, the active participation of women was much more evident to me when I was uh, doing the North Carolina research as far as documentation goes. Now, in Mississippi, in Jones County, you had a lot of oral traditions and, and stories passed down uh, through the generations uh, that you know, that were certainly, I mean, you know that there's a story there. You just don't know exactly where the facts are and where the legend takes over. 
the the scene which shows women resisting. Um, one thing it put me in mind of when I saw it was a scene in The Cowboys, the, the John Wayne film from the early 70s, where they're about to hang uh, the character played by Roscoe Lee Brown, uh, uh, who's become a sort of father figure to a group of literal boys, cowboys. And he's, as they put the rope around his neck, he asks to say his last words, and his last thing is, forgive me for the men I've killed, and those I'm about to kill. And then all the boys spring into action and start shooting, and they save him. Uh, mm. And it turns a, a ceremony into uh, an ambush. And it also has children doing the shooting. And in the Free State of Jones movie, there are a number of scenes where children are uh, employed initially, at least, uh, to, to wield guns, which on one level is a little disturbing in the way the, the Patriot, the Mel Gibson movie, has children defeating the British Army uh, with their dad single-handed, uh, which is a little uh, exaggerated. Did were, were, were children mobilized by the Knight Company uh, in this way? Well, the, the two boys, the two brothers that are hanged, uh, there was a 13-year-old brother who was a part of the Knight Game who, who hung out with him kind of along with his older brother, Phil, and mm-hmm. Phil was definitely hanged, and I have read, you know, talking again about legends that come down, oral accounts that come down through families. I read more than one that said his little brother was also hanged. But mm-hmm. I talked to an, a, a, another researcher who said he found evidence that he was still alive after the Civil War, so that he, his point was that was probably just a legend that mm-hmm. somehow got going. And, uh, and, and I did myself never found documentation in the official records of the hanging of the younger brother, uh, only, only folk tales. But definitely the older brother, uh, who was, by older, that means he was 17 or 18 instead of 13, he was hanged and he was uh, part of a night band. Uh, but the mentions of children being armed, uh, I, I, I can't really say that that was documented uh, for me in any way as a historian that I could make mm-hmm. the claim. Let me... uh, so I, I don't know how widespread that was, just quite frankly, to, to see that. But certainly what I'm more familiar with is the uh, the torturing of children or, or the threat of torture of children and mm-hmm. wives in order to get them to tell where their fathers were hiding in the woods. Now that I found uh, documentation for, especially, again, in the North Carolina records. So, so it's clear that children were involved in this inner civil war. It's mm-hmm. not very easy to get at it. I mean, it's something that uh, I'm sure other historians... Maybe James Martin has found more about uh, Mm -hmm. children's involvement in the Civil War. But as far as these inner civil wars, I wouldn't say that I found uh, a a shocking amount of evidence, just these occasional ones. Because, you know, when you have have an ad hoc army that is basically on the home front, you're obviously going to have younger kids and teenagers all Mm -hmm. becoming somehow connected to it, you know, because of the the fluidity of just families and movement back and forth, kinship and all of that. Let's talk about North Carolina. You mentioned uh, in in your book, The Long Shadow of the Civil War, which really picks up in some ways on the story of of Free State of Jones. You focus on two other areas besides Jones County, Mississippi, the the Big Thicket area, the northeast of Houston and Texas, and then North Carolina's Quaker Belt in the the Piedmont area, which is west of where I am in in the coastal plain of East Carolina. 
talk why, why was there so much resistance in in the Piedmont in North Carolina to the Confederacy? Well, the communities that I looked at are actually I focused more on one community in Montgomery County. It actually spilled over the Montgomery and Randolph County uh, area there, um, and there a very important component uh, of resistance was uh, uh, Wesleyan Methodism. Uh, hmm. And so this was one area, in the three areas that I looked at, this was the one that was most avowedly connected to religious beliefs. I didn't find evidence of, of religious beliefs in the forefront of, of unionism in either Jones County or the big thicket of, of uh, Texas. Uh, but I certainly found it in that Piedmont area of North Carolina, uh, the Randolph County area, spilling over into neighboring Montgomery County. And so that was very important. And, of course, also important was the class background of, of those farmers. They were uh, mostly non-slaveholders. Uh, and some of them actually were abolitionists. I mean, I'm very careful with the word abolitionism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never referred to the Jones County uh, dissidents or members of the night band as abolitionists, although some may well have been. But, you know, to me, you need strong, you need, you need, documented evidence of people at least expressing uh, views, abolitionist views, and you do have that in North Carolina, in that Piedmont area, and it's, it's very much a part of the, the Wesleyan Methodist uh, influence there, as well as then the class background as well. But, but being a non-slaveholder doesn't in itself necessarily make one an abolitionist. It might make them a hater of slaveholders and even a hater of slavery, but I still think that's something less than abolitionism. And so that was the thing that I was very interested about in the long shadow of the Civil War and trying to really delineate what what are the, the distinctions as well as the similarities, because each and every one of these communities, it, it kind of has its own history as well mm-hmm. as its parallels with the other regions that, that had these explosive uh, Civil War years. Now, these three communities you look at uh, in in the long shadow of the Civil War are there. There are actual literal relations between them. There are there are Collinses in both Jones County and in the Big Thicket in Texas. Exactly. Uh, and there yes. and there are roots they can trace. All of them can trace back to North Carolina. Exactly. So this, and I thought that was talk about that, that. Was just such an important connecting thread uh, that. And, and I tell you, there was, there was nothing that gave me more of the feeling of being a historian as being, you know, someone who discovers that, that the truth really is stranger than fiction. If I had tried to write a novel where, you know, okay, let's have, let's have these two different inner civil wars and let's have the members of the bands there that, that organize themselves against the Confederacy, let's have them be brothers. You know? And yet, so you can imagine when I discovered that, I was actually doing research in the Austin uh, State Library and the genealogical side, and I found a little, I, I was trying to trace the, uh, the Collins family, their, their roots, because I was, kinship is one of my real categories of analysis of, of, mm-hmm. of unionism, and lo and behold, I discovered that they were the same Collinses that were, that, that not only were in this band in the big thicket known as they were called Jayhawkers, uh, but they were, but they're, one of the brothers of Jasper Collins was the leader of the band, Warren J. Collins, and he is every bit as colorful a character as his brother Jasper, or for that matter, as Newt Knight. And so I shifted over to Texas after writing uh, Long Shadow of the Civil War. I wrote a longer, more complex 
article about Warren J. Collins because he really he really deserves his own study. Uh, so, he liked Newton just, Knight. He lived right into the 1920s, and, re, and he remained politically active to the very end of his days, ran for office as a socialist in the early 20th century. So, just to be clear, you're, you're uh, saying that... You, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I just want to clarify this. So you found out that the Collinses were related... That you didn't go to the big thicket as a topic because of the Collins connection from North from from Mississippi. You found it out afterward. Is that what you're? Well, it it sort of was that I didn't even I really didn't know about the big thicket at first. But what I I discovered the big thicket by tracing the family tree of Jasper Collins to Texas, and then. I picked up on the name. The genealogy didn't tell me about the big thicket because they mm-hmm. had kind of hidden the story. But I mm-hmm. picked up the name Warren J. Collins, and I realized there was a whole body of folklore about him. And the folklore kept alluding to the big thicket, to him being a leader of a band of Jayhawkers. And so then I started doing my own research in the archives and and learn more and more about his entire story. But still, exactly what you were saying is true. I had no idea that the Collinses were were part of unionist in, in civil wars, inner civil wars in two different states until I just stumbled on it by tracing the genealogy of Jasper Collins. Oh, that is just amazing, really interesting. I thought so. <laughs> so um, you, you and, and they both have roots in North Carolina as well. Yeah, the, the Collins family goes back to South Carolina, but before that, it, it goes, to, it, it, they go to North Carolina. They're part of that revolutionary era migration from the North Carolina back country on into South Carolina. So that frontier, that's why the frontier became a very important part of my book, uh, The Free State of Jones, is that that whole following of the frontier, you can just trace these families that are going to end up together in the night company, in the night band in Jones County, you can trace them all across the frontier. Uh, they don't, they don't all travel together, but they kind of follow each other and they're part of this, uh, this, this southeast to southwest trajectory. Uh, and so many of them did know each other back in other, you know, for example, in South Carolina, I can, I can trace them all, you know, I can trace many of them being in the same neighborhoods in South Carolina back in the, uh, early part of the uh, 19th century before they start migrating around 1820. That's really, a, 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 again, a fascinating uh, aspect of this, how it, it, the country was so much smaller when there's only 30 million people. It seems like yeah. a lot still, but, but people knew each other. We're going to take another short break. We'll come back in just a moment, talk more with our guest, Vicki Bynum. She's the author of The Long Shadow of the Civil War, Southern Descent and Its Legacies, also author of Free State of Jones, one of the sources of the movie uh, that uh, is currently out here in 2016. We'll do that in just a moment. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Victoria E. Bynum, author of The Long Shadow of the Civil War, Southern Descent and Its Legacies, also the author of Free State of Jones, a book we talked about eight years ago when they were just thinking of making a movie out of it. And lo and behold, that movie has appeared this year in 2016. And we've talked about that as well. Uh, Vicki, in The Long Shadow of the Civil War, the it becomes very clear that the Confederate, the resistance to the Confederacy in Jones County, in uh, the Quaker Belt of North Carolina, in the big thicket of Texas, those struggles don't end in April 1865 when the, the main force war and Civil War ends. Uh, these continue on uh, certainly into Reconstruction. Could you talk about how these these fights never really seem to come to a close? That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, in fact, in both Jones County and uh, and in Hardin County, or actually the East Texas, I should say more broadly, uh, they they really do move into uh, third party political movements. Uh, and I mentioned that Warren J. Collins ran as a socialist uh, between 1909 and 1912. Uh, there was also his brother Jasper was a populist in 1895 and founded the populist the only not populist newspaper that I've ever been able to find in Jones County itself. It was quite politically active. Uh, up until his death in 1913. And uh, Newt Knight, we're not so sure of politically, and I think uh, I mean, he was very active during Reconstruction, but uh, at the time with the, the counter-revolution against, uh, against radical Reconstruction, against Adelbert Ames' administration, uh, also seemed to spell the end to Newt Knight's political career, and, I'm, and I, I have no doubt that his interracial family also contributed to his inability to remain active, you know, to run for, for political office as white supremacy became the whole, you know, call uh, among the, the revived uh, Democratic Party during that period of time. And segregation, of course, the laws of segregation are being passed and, and enforced. So I think Newt Knight's political career was over by 1880 because of that transition. But for Warren Collins and Jasper Collins, each in their separate states of Mississippi and Texas, they very much represented this movement into uh, third-party uh, political movements and were both very active, and they weren't the only ones. I mean, there were others with them. And that's an area that I think needs more study by historians to just see how widespread it was, because certainly there are many people who opposed secession and, and fought against the Confederacy 
who probably were never politically active again afterwards. But I still think there's something there, and there's more, there's more to be learned about this ongoing story on into political movements later in the, later in the century, the 19th century. So you have the ex-unionists who are obviously a political minority in the South during the war, then continuing to be politically active in, in minority causes like the Populist Party. In North Carolina, you have literal uh, combat. You still have uh, uh, fighting. You describe how the Klan was very active uh, and Governor Holden tried to suppress them in 1869. Oh, yeah. uh, could you talk about that? Well, and that's the part, that's the period of time that, uh, of course, Gary Ross presented Newt Knight as being very active during that, that period of time. And it would be wonderful if we had more documentation, because we do know that Newt Knight was, was a part of Albert Ames' administration. He had appointments uh, as the, uh, uh, over a, a black militia. He was the uh, appointed uh, colonel over that. Uh, and he also... Um, uh, worked locally. I mean, he was he was a uh, relief commissioner there in Jones County and worked for the for the federal government. Often obeying military orders to advance uh, uh, racial issues. Uh, the, the scene in the movie where he uh, gets the child out of the apprenticeship system and gets him back to his parent, you know, who is Moses Washington in the movie. There, that really is uh, factually based, even though some of the details of it were changed. But Newt Knight really did play that role. So, yes, uh, I wish I'd have had more documentation for Jones County. You, you were referring to the North Carolina situation, which is very well documented because the Ku Klux Klan absolutely terrorized that, that whole area there, that um, Orange County uh, and the surrounding counties there. It, it was just uh, an incredible war that went on well after the war, exactly. And it, of course, involved former Unionists. Uh, they were they were targeted as were freed freed people were targeted, but so also were the former unionists very violently. When you, you mentioned Newton Knight did not uh, continue to be active in politics later in the century, but he did pursue his claim against the federal government for compensation, claiming that he and his men effectively served uh, the union cause and should be compensated. Yes, he did. And, and as I was reading that account, on the one hand, it's very frustrating to see how, how difficult it is for him to get a hearing. But as a historian, I, I kept thinking, boy, there's some good source material there. Uh, did Can you talk about how, from a historical point of view, what what did you gain from, from the records of, of Knight trying to pursue his claim? Well, those records are just remarkable, and I think they are the, the best primary source that we have about the free, free State of Jones, even though much of it is, is in the form of depositions, that is, men's memories of having participated in the Knight Company. And let me make the point, when I wrote the book, The Free State of Jones, I had only seen part of those claim files. The archivist hmm. could not find them at the National Archives, and I knew they existed because another researcher, a librarian, had cited them in a genealogical work, and we had to conclude that they were somehow lost. Well, they weren't lost, they were just misplaced, and I wasn't able to get them in time to really discuss them in depth in the Free State of Jones, and that's why I have the chapter in The Long Shadow of the Civil War called uh, Fighting a Losing Battle, Newt Knight uh, and the Court of Claims. And uh, that's where I finally got my opportunity to sit down with these voluminous records and really go through them. And you really do see uh, the the uh, uh, 
the, the incredible, uh, first of all, the incredibly frustrating uh, um, attempt to, to get compensation, and of course Newt Knight never got it, and he was so determined. I mean, he filed at least five times. His claims were read before Congress, once by Blanche Bruce, just at the tail end of Blanche Bruce's uh, serving as one of the two uh, black senators of the United States, so it's, you've got that. And uh, you've got uh, the depositions of these men, you get their own words, their own descriptions of why they... Uh, why they fought against the Confederacy, why they joined the Knight Company, who Newt Knight was, and Newt Knight's own words. Um, and it's interesting also to trace how the claims change over time. The mm-hmm. first go-round in 1870, I think, is much closer to the historically documented uh, Free State of Jones that any historian would be seeking. As you go on, you begin to see lawyers coming in, uh, say, around 1887, 1895, who really don't know the story, but they want to shape it in a way that their client will win. Mm -hmm. And then the story becomes murky, and it becomes, well, when I say murky, I mean it becomes clouded with inaccuracies. That if you've been following it as a historian, you can say, oh, no, that's that's inaccurate. What are they doing mm-hmm. there? And so there's several layers of ways to study those claims files. First of all, what do they tell us about the truth of the Free State of Jones? And second of all, what, how do they themselves begin to spin the story before, before the end of the century? And then finally, uh, at the end, when you've got such a cha- you know, you've got this dependence on aging memories. You've got all of the, the generals that they that are referred to as as people that Newton Knight had contact with or Jasper Collins had contact with. They're dead by then, so they can't be questioned. And so uh, the whole it's it's just it's a story of political evolution, and then the evolution of the truth towards something less than the truth is all kind of happening at once. And so I tried. I, I tried in that chapter to really trace it on both levels, both what can we learn about the Free State of Jones here and what can we also learn about the process of trying to file these claims over a 30-year period. Now, in terms of going toward the present, one other thing that uh, that the movie does quite dramatically and effectively and that you then pick up on in the Long Shadow book is talk about the descendants of, of Newt Knight and Rachel and other members of the Knight uh, extended family. Uh, the movie has the, the flash-forward scenes to 1947, the trial of a seemingly uh, white man who's being accused of actually not being white and thus not legally married to a white woman. Uh, what, how did the, the Knight descendants deal with all that? Well, and you know, many of them are in, are in that in that audience. They're in the the courtroom. There, uh, they're the people uh. observing. Um, it, it, Gary Ross hired many of them as as extras for that, and they were just quite excited to be a part of it. I uh-huh. think probably what they that's where they most wish for a much more complex telling of the story. Mm-hmm. That those courtroom scenes, which were just spliced in there, and probably have been criticized uh, the most as as being too confusing for the audience. I think the reason that happened is they're just they were cut so much. There was actually a, a good deal more filming uh, in those scenes that would have more explained exactly how this trial fits in with the whole story. But in so much of it ended on the cutting room floor that I think uh, they were they were they were 
they were left to be kind of confusing to the audience. And that disappointed the descendants, to answer your question. They really mm-hmm. want that story to be told. And that's the story that, that I've tried to tell both in the Free State of Jones and then I tried to take it further. I, I, I take it uh, onto that. Well, I discussed the trial in the Free State of Jones, but I try to discuss more fully the lives of, uh, of, of other descendants besides uh, Davis Knight because there are so many interesting stories about racial identity, uh, whether one is, is white, whether one is black, whether one is neither. And, and, I, and that's where I think you could really tell a really complex story. It might be better told as a documentary. I'm not sure. But it's, it's just a fascinating continuation of the story into the 20th century. And, of course, because... Uh, Newt Knight lived into the 1920s. He's still a part of that story for for quite a while. Uh, And then after his death uh, in 1922, um, that's when you really, uh, you see some, the whole breakup of the community. Uh, Many of them moving away, many of them identifying uh, as white. Many of them were raised, basically, uh, as white and, of course, had more European or white blood or whatever you want to call it, you know, that they were they were ethnically uh, more European than they were African, certainly. But we're living in a world where the one-drop rule is still so much a part of society and even enters into the legal system. And that's where the, the, the Davis Knight trial is so fascinating because that's where I really learned clearly for the first time that there's a big difference between the way the law defined race and the way custom defined race. Customarily in the South, the one-drop rule was if you had any, you know, drop of African ancestry, you're a black person and subject to all the disabilities uh, assigned in a segregated society to black people. Uh, But according to the law, you could have upwards to one-eighth African ancestry, and legally you were still white. And so that's how the lawyer and Davis Knight had had a brilliant lawyer, and that didn't really come across in the movie because there wasn't the time who came back and got his conviction overturned based on the fact that the court had applied the one-drop rule instead of the actual law, which was the one-eighth ancestry rule, just to give it a a name of its own. So that, as you can see, I mean, as I talk about this, I think I can't go on too much about this or it will probably be more confusing, but that's why there's (laughs) another story here to tell that was only hinted at in the movie. Well, there really is. I, I found the, the courtroom scenes, uh, it, I, I understood what was going on. It took a little bit. At first, you're taken aback the first one, and then you start to figure it out. And I think the listeners of Civil War Talk Radio who have a grasp on the, the Civil War and its legacy will not have a problem with it. But I can see how some movie reviewers might find that a little much. Uh, yeah. But still, well, some, the whole, I, I, say, say the whole story. personally tell me. Sorry, go, go Sorry. ahead. Well, some people personally told me that they, they just, if they hadn't read the book especially, I just think it, it just was unexpected. But mm-hmm. I loved the idea when Gary Ross shared with me how he was going to integrate the trial, and I, I, I just thought that it was, uh, it, it would, I mean, I just didn't want it any other way. I wanted that, that trial to be in there. But you see, that also reflects the fact that I've always treated the Free State of Jones as really a, a story of the American South. I didn't set out to write a Civil War book. I set out to write a story about the whole evolution of Southern society, Southern culture, Southern identity, that in which the Civil War just is, an, is a major uh, story within it. 
but it's still a story within it. Uh, to me, the Free State of Jones is much bigger than just the Civil War, although you could never tell it, you, know, you could never tell it without making the war uh, a centerpiece of it. But there's, that, that is but, true. But it's also there and going beyond it is so important. So unfortunately, it's also a bigger story than we have time to continue with tonight. We're already at the end of our hour, uh, and we'll have to leave matters here. But listeners, okay. if you have if you have not seen Free State of Jones, you will enjoy it as a movie and as a uh, a revelation of a fascinating chapter in Civil War and American history, and likewise the book and also the newer book, The Long Shadow of the Civil War: Southern Descent and Its Legacies. Uh, all by Victoria Bynum, our guest tonight. Vicki, thanks so much for being on Civil War Talk thank Radio. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I, I really enjoyed it. And listeners, thank you as always for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.